you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, we're not going to start re-preaching the entire gospel starting this morning, but I do want to remind us as we listen to, I don't know, 11 or 12 examples of various people in the gospel of John who expressed some form of identification with or belief in Jesus, especially as they affirm Him in the various roles and offices. And the emphasis here, of course, is on faith, on believing in Christ. Look at John 1.1. John 1.1. The Apostle John himself starts out by saying that Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, the only one who is God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So from the very first chapter of John's Gospel, there is an emphasis on Jesus as the Word of God, as God Himself. Look at verse 34 of John 1. John the Baptist. It says, He has seen and borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 45. Jesus found Philip, and Philip said to Nathanael, John 1, 45, We have found Him of whom Moses In the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The clear affirmation of the person and work of Christ. John 1.49, Nathanael said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Giving him title and office. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 42. Remember the Samaritans? John 4.42, it says, The Samaritans proclaim, We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These are non-Jews, but they are impacted by the message of Jesus, and they believe He's the Savior of the world. Look at chapter 4, verse 50. It's uh, said uh, about the nobleman whose son had died, if you remember, When Jesus spoke a word to him about his son, the scripture says in verse 50 of John 4, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed. Look at John chapter 9. Remember the man born blind? John chapter 9. The man born blind, according to John chapter 9, verse 38, the man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worshipped Jesus, and Jesus received such worship. You remember Martha in John 11, verse 27, just sweeping our way through the gospel? John eleven twenty seven. Martha said to Jesus, you remember when he said, do you believe, Martha, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead? Do you believe? Martha said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
Amazing affirmation of faith and belief in, in Jesus. Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Right there at the end of verse 30. John 16, 30. The disciples, followers of Jesus, the, the, the twelve minus Judas, of course. The disciples said to Jesus, we believe that you came from God. We believe. John 20, verse 8. The Apostle John, the very writer of this gospel, upon seeing the empty tomb, the Bible says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She's referring to the resurrected Christ. I've seen Him. I believe. Now those are just a a few references, and there are more. But do you realize that for every one reference in the Gospel of John, there are probably a corresponding one, if not more, to those who disbelieve? It's, It's sad but true. The Jews, by and large, for whom Jesus came to save, John 1, 11 and 12, they don't believe. They are a, a group, and there are many of them, that are disbelievers, unbelievers. And so what I thought I would do this morning, now that you are in John 20, is looking at verses 24 to 29. John 20, 24 to 29. Easy, easy outline this morning. From unbelief, that's verses 24 and 25, to belief, verses 26 to 29. This is the simple yet profound outline about this man, Thomas. We have called him through the ages, as have Christians, doubting Thomas. Well, it's true to an extent. But what I want to do this morning is give you, in these two outline points, a sense of what unbelief is and what belief is, sort of the anatomy of both. And so let's talk first of all this morning about unbelief, from unbelief. Look at verses 24 and 25 of John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin... The word didymus is what is used there, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That's referring, of course, to the fact that Jesus, according to verses, or excuse me, according to chapters 20 and 21, is going to make three post-resurrection appearances in close proximity to these disciples. Now, it could have been, of course, that they might have had other opportunities to see him individually. But as a group, there are three occasions in John 20 and 21, which is undoubtedly why John has written his gospel in these two chapters this way, because there are three episodes, three stages of their belief. And the first one, Thomas wasn't there. You remember back at chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He didn't just utter peace be with you as a sort of informal greeting like we would if we were to greet one another today. He actually has a great purpose for what he's saying 
peace for. And that purpose is because they are fearful. The disciples, for fear of the Jews, locked the doors behind them. And Jesus, probably due to an angelic visitor opening the door for him and then locking it behind him, appears in their midst. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But apparently Thomas wasn't among them. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So in this first episode, locked door, Jesus appears in the midst of them. He grants them peace for their fear, but Thomas isn't there. And the narrative picks up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That is, came the first time. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. That's almost exact phraseology with verse 20. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But notice the contrast. Verse 25, But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, that's a a strong negative, isn't it? It's a a double negative, actually. I will not ever, no, never believe. Unless I see the incontrovertible evidence, evidence that cannot be refuted, unless I place my own hands on the mark of the nails on his hands and place my finger into the mark of his side, I will never believe. Now, that's, that's strong unbelief. It's strong negative reaction from one who was one of the very closest followers of Jesus. And do you know that this is actually the third time that Thomas is mentioned in the Gospel of John? And he fluctuates back and forth from what looks like a close following to now a statement like this. Look in your Bibles back at John chapter 11. This looks like one of those passages in which Thomas is is ready to die for the Lord. This is that Lazarus resurrection narrative. And Jesus has to tell them in John 11, 14, plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. This is one of those believe passages. I'm going to do this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Let's go to Lazarus. Let's raise him up. And notice Thomas, first time he's mentioned in the gospel. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. You say, that's, that's great faith, or so it appears. If we're going to go back to that place and there's going to be such controversy, the Jews are after Jesus, they're going to be after us, let's go and even be prepared to die with Him. But then notice chapter 14. Chapter 14, Jesus is giving them this this upper room discourse, this sort of um, divine pep talk, as it were. And He says, 
I will come again, verse 3, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And here's Thomas, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Where's Thomas? Where is he spiritually? He doesn't know the way that Jesus is going. They're they're confused. He appeared earlier to say, I'd be willing to die for him, to die with him. What's going on? I mean, why does Thomas say, unless I can put my, my hands on his hands, unless I can put my hand on his side, I will never believe. I don't know if this is just some form of, of unbelief that is a, a kind of unbelief just because Thomas had never seen resurrection. You say, well, he certainly had. John chapter 11. And so you'd be right. So he'd already seen it. If it's not the sense that Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus can raise the dead, he saw Jesus do it with Lazarus. Can't can't Jesus do it in the raising of himself from the dead? Can't he do it by the the power and will of the Father to raise Jesus from the dead? Is, Is Thomas unbelieving in that sense just because he doesn't assume that it can happen maybe a second time? Or maybe not with Jesus? What's going on here? Well, the text doesn't really tell us, but one thing we know is that the worldview of that day, including these very disciples, is that they are unsure of resurrection because maybe the person who was supposedly resurrected from the dead, whether it might be Lazarus or Jesus, might have actually been a spirit being and not a real person. So what are you talking about? Well, did you know, latently so, not full-blown, that didn't come to about the second century, but in that first century context in which these events are, are unfolding, there was a sense growing in its uh, full-orbed sense a kind of heresy that was a part of what later would be adopted by the Gnostics, and it was a heresy called docetism. Docetism. It's from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. And it would be something like this. It would be that ghosts, uh, spirit apparitions, uh, visions of the underworld, the overworld, would be in and around in this worldview formation. This idea of what was happening around us. We have the physical world and we have the spiritual world. And sometimes the two come in close contact with each other to the degree that there could be someone who appears to be physical but actually isn't physical at all. They only seem to have a physical body. It's possible that John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, and Thomas and the others are having a little bit of a struggle because maybe it's that Jesus appeared to be human, but he really wasn't a human being at all. He was a spirit being. 
And maybe this idea of resurrection was that he actually wasn't raised from the dead bodily, but that he was a spirit being and he went through a a kind of a, a method, a kind of course of action where he's now appearing to them as a spirit being, but he really wasn't physically in the flesh. You say... That sounds kind of weird. Well, well, in our worldview, it might be such. In their worldview, it was very real. In fact, turn back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Do you remember when Jesus walked on water, according to John chapter 6, verse 16? When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles. So they are well out in this water. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What's interesting about that is that you don't see it from John chapter 6, but the parallel gospel accounts, including, by the way, Matthew chapter 14 says this, verse 26, but when the disciples, this is the same scene now, Matthew is giving his commentary on it, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, they collectively said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Why? Because they had a worldview that included the idea of ghosts, spiritual apparitions. And this particular teaching began to infiltrate the church that maybe Jesus himself was a a mere apparition. He wasn't real. He didn't have a, a true, physical, literal body. And so maybe that would hedge against and maybe even create a false teaching that would include a practical denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what docism was, or docetism was. This was the, the theory, the idea, the doctrine that denied Jesus Christ as literally come in the flesh, John 1.14, and, and, and He came and He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. But they would say, oh, well, He dwelt among us in a sense spiritually, but not bodily. And so therefore, they began to deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you know, John in his later writings had to counteract such teaching, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Same writer. This is John. And as this was coming to have greater sway in the church by the end of John's life, here it was, 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, and notice this uh, sort of latent uh, incipient docetism here. 1 John uh, chapter 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Notice small letter S, spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, capital S, every spirit, small s, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. See the teaching? 
If you're testing the, this spirit world, if you're testing uh, the doctrine of whether or not someone who's coming to your church to try to teach you, and if they confess that Jesus Christ has actually come in the flesh, that he had a bodily existence, uh, that he was physically, literally raised from the dead, you know they're from God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that is Jesus has come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, someone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. See, that's what they were teaching. They were denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in its most literal sense. Oh, uh, he wasn't really a flesh and blood human being. He was a spirit being. So then you can see from the backdoor sense how they could deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but do it so subtly. Look at 2 John chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7. 2 John verse 7. There's only one chapter, so we don't say chapters here in 2 and 3 John. 2 John 7. John says, To those to whom he's writing, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. What kind of deceivers, John? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. What kind of teaching of Christ? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching that Jesus has come in the flesh has both the Father and the Son. This is, this is huge. This is why doctrine is important. This is why affirming the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is so important. Because the subtleties of the false teachers are out there. Hey, maybe this was a ghost. Maybe this was a a, a spirit apparition. Hey, maybe we don't have to believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because Jesus Christ, the person Jesus, He didn't really come in the flesh. He only seemed to come in the flesh. It's very possible, my friends, that Thomas might have had some of that worldview working itself through in his mind. We don't know. Why else then would Jesus say, I want you to come. Touch me. Feel the scars. I am in the flesh. I am a human being. I've been resurrected bodily, literally, from the dead. We don't know what all the forms of unbelief that are out there, but we know this, this one is deadly heretical. You deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You deny it because you think He only seemed to be a human being, but that He wasn't really a human being, and therefore He wasn't really resurrected because He didn't, didn't really come in the flesh in the sense that you and I have flesh and bones. Boy, that's a major form of unbelief. That's a major heresy. And boy, did it take off 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century. It was full-blown. It was full-orbed. 
And there was heresy pervading the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why John, way back in First and Second and Third John, before he was exiled on the island of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation, he was saying, I'm warning you. I'm telling you. This is critical. You've got to understand this. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ has come bodily in the flesh, you're not of God. And what John was doing was he was undressing the very anatomy of what unbelief looks like. What about belief? Man, I'm so glad we can turn the corner. Look at verse 26 of John chapter 20. John says, eight days later, and you know eight days, that means that this is the following Sunday after the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. You'll say, well, that would be seven days. Well, remember, they started counting in the evening of that Sunday, right? So that's day one, and then seven days later. We're here on Sunday, eight days later. Thomas wasn't with them before. He's with them now. His disciples were inside again, and they were fearful because it says, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said for the third time, peace be with you. They are still fearful. They're fearful of the Jews, fearful of what's going to happen to them. There's still doubt among them. But I thought you said last week, Lance, that in verse 22 of this same chapter, that he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that have been enough? Let me ask you, when you received the Holy Spirit at your conversion, were you totally and completely faith-filled? <laughs> was, there, was there any doubt in your heart? Are you on the road to sanctification as the Holy Spirit controls you and matures you? Sure. And just think of it this way. Even though they've got this worldview of of ghosts and spirit apparitions, and if that's sort of the standard fare of the worldview of the day, and Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and they had no category to understand their Messiah as one who was going to die, let alone rise again from the dead... And they're fearful of the Jews. And he's saying, I give you my peace. You don't need to be fearful. I'm telling you, it's me. And he says in verse 20, look at my hands, look at my side. They were glad when they saw the Lord, but Thomas wasn't there. And now Thomas shows up, but they're still fearful. So the other disciples told him in order to, to show him their increasing belief, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him. But he doesn't buy it. And so, second appearance in an enclosed environment, eight days later, they were inside again. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said for the third time, peace be with you. And Thomas said, verse 27, or excuse me, Jesus said to Thomas in verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. That's always, always so interesting to me. Verse 27, in an economy of words, then he said to Thomas, why did he, why did he talk to Thomas? Well, you, you might assume that what was happening was that one of the other disciples in this sort of locked environment, Jesus is now in there, one of the disciples pulls Jesus aside and says, Thomas is an unbeliever. Convince Thomas. Could have gone that way. 
I think it's entirely something different. You know what I think it is? Jesus knew, right? It says back in John 1 and John 2, Jesus didn't entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. And he created Thomas and he knows what Thomas is thinking and he goes right for the jugular and he says to Thomas, put your finger here, Thomas, and see my hands. See the nail scars in my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is commanding Thomas to believe. He's commanding him to believe. This is amazing. This is a command here, folks. Here's the translation. Do not be an unbeliever. Be a believer. That's the command. Or it could be translated this way. Stop being an unbeliever. Believe. Or even further... To be translated, this is my favorite, stop being faithless and believe. Say, why is that your favorite? Because the word that is used here in the Greek text is pistos, which is the word for believe, and the word unbelieving that's used here, apistos. The little a, the little alpha privative on the front, negates the word. You and I would say that if someone who says they don't believe in God is an atheist, right? An atheist. The little a negates the word, they don't believe in God, an atheist. Here's someone who is faithless. He's an apistos. He's an unbeliever. And Jesus says, don't be an unbeliever. Believe. Be pistos. This is a challenge. This is a command. You say, well, how's that going to be any different? How's that going to be any different for, for Thomas? Jesus already told the rest of them, look at my side. Look at my hands. He's doing that with Thomas right now. Here's the difference, my friends. When Jesus Christ commands someone to believe and He wants them in His followership, He wants them in His life, He wants them to affirm His Lordship, when He wants them to affirm that He is God, He says this, believe. And that's exactly what happened to Thomas. Look at his response. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My friends, that's conversion right there. That's conversion. That's Jesus opening his mind, Thomas's mind, to believe. You say, how can you be so sure? Jesus himself said in John 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. If the Spirit of God doesn't cause you to be born from above, you will not be born from above. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, No one comes to the Father, or no one comes to me, unless the Father, what? Draws him. (laughs) That is such a rich word. It's the word helkuo. And And it means... The, the drawing, even in extra-biblical literature, Helkuo was used of the dragging of a dead horse. Is that graphic for us? This is amazing. John chapter 3 and John chapter 6 and now John chapter 20 and other places in John's gospel. When Jesus Christ opens your eyes, when the Spirit of God, and he already said here, receive the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God opens your eyes, you see. When the Spirit of God uncorks your ears, you believe. You hear the message in a new way. And that's your experience and that's my experience, right? 
I was a freshman in college. I was going my own way. I had no thought of the Lord. My mother was a Jehovah's Witness. I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't want one. And at one point, I saw a Bible on my shelf, and I picked it up, and I began reading it. And through the eyes of faith, by the living and abiding seed of the Word of God, God caused me by His Spirit for my eyes to be open and for the reality of my sin to be exposed. That's what happened. I was alive for the first time. I read the Bible in a new way. That, my friends, was a long time ago. That was 1978, 1979. And I've never looked back. This is, this is regeneration. This is conversion. This is somebody who was walking this way And the Spirit of God turned them around to walk the other way. That's why we call it repentance. Repentance is a turning from your sin. It's a a 180. And and Thomas was was a 180 unbeliever. He says, I will never believe. And Jesus says, believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. This is This is so incredible. This is not just Thomas sort of um, in a lark, uh, just with what he might have been prompted in the moment to say. Do you know what Thomas is saying by this? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5 as we come to a close. Psalm 5. This is actually, this phrase of Thomas, my Lord and my God, this is Thomas actually giving a praise affirmation of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Psalm 5.2, this is David, and David says in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name, the personal name for Yahweh. He says, Give, give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my groaning. And then verse 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. You know that phrase, my King and my God, my Lord and my God, is interchangeable. The very thing that Thomas said was actually a liturgy of the Psalms. They were praising God. They were worshiping Him. And they were saying about God the Father, you are my King, my Lord, and my God. You want to see some more? Uh, look, at, look at Psalm 35. This, this may actually be the most important one. I could show you some others. Psalm uh, 86.15, Psalm 84.3, Psalm 99.8.9. But I'll show you just one before we close. Psalm 35. This was actually Thomas reaching back to the Psalms, reaching back to how he praised God when he read the Psalms, probably memorized many of them. And in Psalm 35, look at verse 23. David says, Awake and rouse yourself speaking of Yahweh, for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. O Lord, my God, vindicate me. You say, what's so important about that? The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, that phrase, my God and my Lord, is the exact same Greek phraseology, only inverted for what Thomas said here. My Lord and my God. He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was doing. 
He was using these prayer prompts from the Psalms to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my God. This is probably the clearest, most forceful verse in the entire New Testament that affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. Right here. John 20, 28. You say, well, it's so easy for Thomas to have done that. He had the evidence. It was right there. Put your hands on my side. Look back at John 20. What does it say in verse 29? This is is important. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know what causes belief? Oh, you have to believe. You have to repent of your sins. You have to do the 180 turn. You have to do it. It's your responsibility. But do you know the very basis upon which anybody does any turning, any repenting, any believing? Is if Jesus Christ commands you to believe. And what Jesus Christ commands somebody to do, they do. Because He's never challenged or commanded anybody to do something that they utterly refused to do if he says open their eyes that's the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ that's his power if he can raise from the dead he can show Thomas that his command to believe is effective this this is Thomas saying like the psalmist my my king my my lord and my God, I see Him for who He is. He's not just the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's that's enough. He is God in human flesh. He's not a spirit apparition. He's not a ghost. He was really born. He really died. And He is really divine. (laughs) This is an opportunity, my friends, for every one of you. You may have said to yourself, I'm the unbelieving Thomas. I will never believe unless I see it. Be the believing Thomas. And even beyond Thomas himself, be the one who can say to the Lord, 1 Peter 1, John 20, 29, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. Blessed is the one who's never seen the nail prints in his hands and the scars in his side. Blessed is the one who believes in Jesus Christ by faith. Blessed are all those in Hebrews 11. And bless God that he gave us the opportunity when he said, believe. And we believed. Do you believe? Let's pray together. Father, we believe. This is true conversion. This is what it truly is. This is the this is the action in a moment that takes us from unbelief to belief. Oh, Heavenly Father, draw in this hour 
at this moment command everyone in this room, in their hearts, to believe. Command it, Jesus Christ. Bring someone from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ, bodily raised from the dead. And through the eyes of faith, even though we have not seen Him, and even though we do not see Him now, we believe in Him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.